This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hello everyone, my name is Maria Mota, and I'm here today to talk about the disease that I've been working for now a few decades, it's malaria. And basically, I will give you a general overview of malaria, the parasite that it causes, the vector that really transmits the disease, the overall treatments, the diagnosis, etc. So I hope you enjoy the information that I will provide here. But to start with, I really would like to start with the history of malaria. And really, the history of malaria spans from really prehistorical times to our days. And basically, initially, it has started as a kind of zoonotic disease that probably was a disease, you know, within primates that then start to pass to humans. But later on, we really have plasmodium species, that is the parasite that really causes malaria, that are specific to humans. But in fact, its name, it really is reported to the Middle Ages. And in fact, in medieval Italian, uh, the, the two words came together and it was Malaria. And basically, oh, historically, it is thought that were the Romans that thought that people would become infected if they were living nearby the swamps. And they attributed the disease to the bad air of the swamps. Come later on and try to exactly come to this, how it's transmitted, etc. So the, the disease name came from there. And then already in the 19th century, okay, it was when we start to study that really what was the cause of malaria. And in fact, it was a French physician working in Algeria that really realized and uh, saw malaria parasites, malaria pigment, or so parasite pigment inside red blood cells, and attributed this as a protozoan parasite that was in the basis of uh, the malaria patients. He was taking blood from these malaria patients and so that they had this typical pigment inside red blood cells and attributed to this. Lavarin really uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1907 for this discovery. Then, uh, around the same time, a few years later, in fact, uh, another uh, scientist, uh, a physician in the army working in India, basically uh, proposed that there was a mosquito that was responsible to transmit the malaria parasite. And this was Ronald Ross, a British uh, physician. And at the same time, this again is historically quite controversial because around the same time, uh, the Italian school of, uh, you know, of scientists led by Grassi also reported that indeed uh, Anopheles mosquitoes were capable of transmitting malaria parasites. And in fact, it was the Italian school that showed for the first time both Plasmodium falciparum and Plasmodium vivax transmitting from humans to mosquitoes and uh, vice versa. And then we come to a discovery that I like very much. So we already knew that, you know, it was a protozoan parasite that was the cause of malaria. We already knew that it was a mosquito that was transmitting this parasite. But there was a kind of waiting time. We knew that supposedly the parasite was transmitting, but only one week, 10 days later, we could see the parasites in circulation. There was, throughout several decades, many hypotheses what exactly was going on. But 
was in 1948 a paper by Short and Kerham that really definitively showed that the parasite was really going to the liver, infecting hepatocytes and replicating in these hepatocytes to form merozoites that then would infect the red blood cells and cause disease. Also, uh, around after Second World War, uh, you know, with the use of one uh, wonder drug against malaria that was chloroquine, and we will mention that later and again, and also discovery of very strong insecticide DDT that really a uh, strong interest came uh, with the concept of eradicating malaria from the world. And so, basically, a global malaria uh, eradication program was uh, initiated, and many believed that would uh, be successful and would be able to eradicate malaria from the world. As you can see, malaria is still this today, but again, Will come later on to it. And in the 70s was also some very important discoveries. I mentioned here one, but in fact there were several important discoveries of things that are being used these days. One of them is the discovery of artemisinin by Chinese scientists using the artemisia plant that was used in traditional Chinese medicine, and they were able to extract artemisinin and show that in fact would kill malaria parasites extremely efficiently, and now is being really used these days to save millions of lives uh, as a combination therapy. So now that we went through a little bit of the history of malaria and we can really see that malaria has been with us for, for a long time and is still with us here, let me introduce you to the life cycle of uh, uh, the malaria parasite. Again, and as mentioned, the malaria parasite is of the genus Plasmodium, is a protozoan parasite, is a unicellular parasite, but re really reach many different stages and many different forms. In the salivary glands of the mosquito is in a stage that is called sporozoite, and is in a quiescent way, does not replicate, and is waiting to really be transmitted when this mosquito only females mosquitoes, because they need blood meals to lay eggs, because they need a protein meal, basically when they are really probing for a blood vessel, they really deposit parasites that are in their, glands, in their salivary glands, and in that way they transmit these malaria parasites. These parasites have a very interesting ability of crossing through cells, of traversing through cells without fixing the first one that they see. They use this ability to cross skin cells until they reach a blood vessel. As soon as they enter into circulation, very quickly they stick to the sinusoids of uh, the liver, and that is because the main coat of the uh, plasmodium sporozoids is a protein called circumsporozoid protein, and basically binds two molecules in these sinusoids. As they stop there, they need to cross to the other side, and again, they traverse several cells until they are fixing one of them. In this final one, they make a proper parasitophorous vacuole where they will reside. It's a membrane that really grows and accompanies the growth and multiplication of the parasite, and really the parasite within this vacuole, within an hepatocyte, is able to multiply from 1 into 10,000, uh, uh, 30,000 new parasites. And these parasites then are released into blood circulation, and when they reach blood circulation, they infect red blood cells. And they are not able anymore to infect hepatocytes, they infect red blood cells, and in these red blood cells, basically, they go into cycles that go 
48 hours or 72 hours, depending of the plasmodium species. Plasmodium falciparum, that is the most dangerous one, is 48 hours. And in every 48 hours, they produce 20, 30 new parasites that we know depends of the plasmodium strain, but also depends probably of our environmental conditions, the number of parasites that they produce. But the new ones that come out of red blood cells reinfect new red blood cells and they go into kind of cycles that would cause the symptoms associated with malaria. But some parasites that infect red blood cells, probably to environmental cues and, you know, many aspects, they come out of the cycle. And they form what we call uh, the pre-sexual, sexual forms of the parasite. They form male and female gametocytes that, again, will be in a kind of quiescent way, waiting for a mosquito, another female mosquito that will come to bite. And now, by taking a blood meal, these parasites end up in the stomach of this mosquito. By changes in environment and many cues, the environmental cues that have been studied already, these parasites transform and form, come from gametocytes into uh, male and female gametocytes, uh, uh, gametes, and then they form an egg, they fuse, they form an egg, and they form thousands of new parasites that again go to the salivary glands of mosquito. In approximately uh, two weeks, they are ready. Uh, if this mosquito bites again a new host, they will be transmitted to a new human uh, being. So, let's go now in detail exactly on this. Uh, in the uh, hepatic stages within the hepatocyte, I, as I already mentioned, each parasite gives rise to thousands, 10,000 or more uh, merozoites, and these merozoites now will be red blood cell infective. When they reach the blood, they infect red blood cells. And now, this is a cycle that is not one go, it is the liver stage. In fact, this is kind of the infinite cycles of merozoites as mentioned here, because every, in every cycle, 48 or 72 hours, basically one red, one parasite infects a red blood cell, multiplies in 20, 30 new parasites, they burst red blood cell, new merozoites come out, each of them will infect a new red blood cell, etc. This is really the stage that causes the disease, that causes malaria, and all malaria-associated symptoms are due to uh, the fact of the parasites replicating inside of red blood cells and bursting these red blood cells, okay? And we'll go to symptoms later on, exactly what kind of symptoms can appear here. But as I already mentioned, then we can start also in the blood a new part of the life cycle that is really, really important, and is the sexual reproduction of the parasite. Indeed, what happens is that we also form some kind of quiescent forms that are male and female gametocytes that will be awaiting for a female Anopheles mosquito to come and have a blood meal. These parasites end up in the stomach of the mosquito, but there, due to environmental cues, these parasites really transform in male and female gametes. They are ready now to fuse, and basically, now, when they fuse, uh, basically, they form all kinet. This all kinet is also motile, and because it's motile, it's able to cross the, the wall of the midgut, and there they form a whole cyst, a cyst that is there, and for a few days, one parasite will give rise to 1,000 parasites. This whole cyst, after two days, is burst. These parasites are in the hemocyl, but they would invade the salivary glands, and again, they are uh, also a form, a quiescent form of the parasite that will be waiting in the salivary glands for this mosquito to take a blood meal and be transmitted to a new 
human host. So altogether, basically, what I'm telling you here is that we have an extremely complex life cycle. But where is malaria? What are the malaria endemic regions? And basically, these days they are confined to what we call the malaria belt, African continent, and in fact, in 2017, 93% of deaths and 93 92% of cases of malaria were confined to the malaria, the uh, African continent, okay? But there is also the Latin America, South America, and also Asia. So these regions around tropics where the mosquitoes that transmit malaria are more efficient and their presence is more consistent are really the regions of uh, endemic of malaria and where people get more risk. But within these endemic uh, regions, the groups that have the highest risk of malaria are usually children under the age of five years old, pregnant women, not only for the health of women uh, that is pregnant, but also for the fetus that uh, this woman carries, immunosuppressed patients, especially HIV-infected patients, and, of course, all the travelers that really didn't have any previous exposure. So people that travel for, you know, holidays or for working that are really going to endemic areas, they are probably as as high risk as children living in endemic areas. Okay? So what is really the global malaria burden and what was throughout history. I'm not going to make throughout history because, you know, we have not, not have data for all these, but I'm going to make it since the 50s after the Second World War for us to have an idea that during this time that we really already have gone through two major malaria eradication programs, uh, really what is the situation these days. And so, basically... Uh, the first campaign to eradicate malaria in the world was extremely successful. And again, as I mentioned to you, you used two tools that were fantastic. Discover of DDT during the Second World War and also chloroquine, one drug that was fantastic and very cheap. And basically, it was able, with these two tools, we were able to eradicate malaria from North America and from Europe, and also reduce significantly the number of cases and number of deaths in Asia. But in fact, if you look at this graph, what we can see is that that campaign was not very successful in, uh, in Africa. Okay, That is this uh, green here, as you can see here. So basically, while... In the 50s and 60s, many around the world considered that malaria eradication would be um, something achievable and were convinced that we would do it in a, uh, one or two decades. That was not the case. And in fact, uh, around the 70s, we start to see a turning in that success. And in fact, in Africa, we start to have an increase in number of uh, uh, deaths by malaria that was probably never seen before. And this number of cases and these uh, cases and deaths by malaria increase almost until the end of the century, of the 20th century, until the basically uh, global campaign was put in place again. This time with lots of different initiatives from different governments, also from private uh, and philanthropic foundations like the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation, were put in place a strong campaign to eradicate malaria from the world. And this campaign was extremely successful. In 15 years, 
was able to really decrease the number of deaths by malaria by 50%. So this was really a, a fantastic uh, campaign and a huge, uh, a extremely successful one. But I would like to point something that, from my point of view, is very interesting that we have in mind. Is this campaign was successful because we used tools that were developed by scientists decades before, including the indoor residual spraying, the artemisinin derivatives, and the insecticide-treated bed, uh, uh, bed nets that were really discovered before. And in fact, artemisinin derivatives now being used as base combination therapies has been a really a major to, to, for the success of this campaign. So what we feel now is that, you know, this is very important to think that we need to develop new tools. And why? And the main problem is because since 2015, although for the first 15 years of this new millennium, we were really successful, since 2015, that we have not seen progress and we have not co continuously see a decrease in malaria deaths and malaria cases around the world. In fact, in the last uh, World Health Report, some of the uh, countries that really have the highest endemicity, we saw an increase in number of malaria cases. So we are really at a situation that we, we are what is called crossroads. It seems that we might not have at the moment the tools necessary to really fully eradicate it. And we really I would like to propose that we need to continue to do research. We need to understand the enemy, the plasmodium, how it interacts with the hosts, different hosts, the vector and the human host, to really find the solutions that will be uh, used for the future. And this is what is happening. A lot of research has been funded really to find and develop new tools. So, but these days, how can malaria prevention and treatment be achieved? And basically, uh, one of the most efficacious one is mosquito nets uh, with uh, insecticide sprays, okay? So basically, uh, is the transmission blocking. is using insecticide impregnated bed nets that not only have a, a blocking of mechanical transmission. The mosquito doesn't reach the uh, people that are sleeping. And at the same time, they are impregnated with insecticides, so the mosquito will die. And it's this indoor residual spraying is also extremely efficacious. So a big part of the success of this uh, eradication campaign initiated in, in this millennium is probably due to uh, really control of malaria transmission. But of course... Uh, what is also very important is early diagnosis. The cases that we really have uh, malaria, be, malaria parasites being transmitted need to be diagnosed as soon as possible, and we will mention later on the diagnoses that are in place that can be used, and of course the antimalarial drugs, especially the artemisinin combination therapies that are extremely efficacious to treat malaria. But again, we'll come to drugs later on, and I will tell you the problems that are arising uh, there as well. So, how, what are the parasites that infect us? I already mentioned that are plasmodium parasites of uh, protozoan parasites that when infect red blood cells causes disease. And we have, we know that at least five species really can cause disease in humans, 
Okay? The last one to be added to this list was Plasmodionosei, that was usually transmitted in uh, primates in Southeast Asia, and more recently, you know, people thought it was a kind of zoonosis, but might be now that transmission is going on also in humans. But we know that these five species can be transmitted to humans and can cause disease to humans. As I mentioned, the majority of deaths around the world are caused by one single species, that is Plasmodium falciparum. And so, a big part of the study and a big part of the tools that are being, uh, you know, trying to be developed to tar are targeting Plasmodium falciparum. Indeed, Plasmodium falciparum uh, symptoms usually are more dangerous than others, although I'll bring later on that it's not only simply this case, and there's nothing to do when the parasite is in the liver. So we know that when the parasite is going through the liver doesn't cause any symptoms, these symptoms only arise when the parasite reaches the blood and infects red blood cells in these continuous cycles of uh, multiplication inside of the red blood cells. And initial symptoms, symptoms are really like fever, chills, headaches, uh, nausea, diarrhea, but they can develop uh, into really life-threatening syndromes. And I say syndromes because indeed malaria is not one single disease. Malaria is really, uh, oh, the outcome of malaria is very heterogeneous and many different syndromes can really uh, be the cause of death by malaria parasites. I mentioned probably here the most common ones, the cerebromalaria neurological syndrome, the severe anemia and uh, the respiratory distress, but there are among others and many times it's just multiple organ failure ultimately. But uh, you can see here, what I'm trying to point here, is the fact that they are different, uh, the probability of them to occur is different from in age, in the level of exposure, in type of malaria endemicity area that the people are exposed, etc. So we know, and the research has been showing, that in fact the outcome of malaria infection depends not only of the parasite factors, but also of the host factors, host genetics, but also of environmental factors and of the conditions that these hosts live. And this is very important also when we think to tackle the disease itself. We need to understand the complexity of this disease. That is not a single disease, but a multi-parametric type of syndrome that is the result of the, that can result in death by this uh, malaria parasites. But going back to these ones, yes, it's true that the majority of deaths around the world are duplasmosis falciparum. But there are uh, another parasite that is quite prevalent, especially in South America and also in Asia, that is Plasmodium vivax. And I would like to call the attention of Plasmodium vivax, not only for its prevalence, also because in the past few years it has been shown that in fact can also cause severe disease, but because together with Plasmodium oval, they have a very important biological feature that has a extremely, that is highly relevant when we think about uh, malaria eradication programs. And is the fact that basically these parasites, when transmitted by a mosquito, they go to the liver as Plasmodium falciparum, but somehow some parasites really replicate, as I have shown to you for falciparum, but other of them, they are not and they are staying in a kind of dormant form within the liver cells. And somehow, and we don't know exactly why, sometimes, usually days, weeks, and even after months, they can 
suddenly start to multiply and replicate again in the liver and cause new blood stage infection without this host have the need to be exposed to a, a new infected mosquito. Why is this extremely relevant? It's extremely relevant for several reasons, but the main one is because we really don't have any idea what is the, the proportion of people living in endemic areas that have these dormant forms in the liver. We also don't have any idea what would be the impact of taking the pressure of plasmodium falciparum in the populations, what would be the impact on these new dormant forms that are there. Also, because we only have one drug at the moment that really can be used to treat the, these dormant forms. It's called primaquine. But primaquine has several problems. One of them being the fact that you need a 14-day uh, protocol of treatment to accomplish fully uh, uh, killing and eradication of the disease. And of course, these, you know, 14 days is very difficult for people to really uh, maintain the treatment until the end. And worse than that is that this drug is extremely uh, dangerous for people that have G6PD deficiency. And so it's never used either in children or in pregnant women because of uh, this, uh, this problem. Of course, not everything is bad news, okay? The fact is, Vivax is much less studied. One reason is because in the blood stages, it infects mainly or probably uniquely uh, reticulocytes, very young red blood cells, so it's very difficult to maintain in culture. But in fact, recent years have shown that humanized liver, mice, and also human cells in vitro, human hepatocytes, really can uh, uh, be infected by plasmodium uh, vivax sporozoids and uh, hypnozoids forms are formed in this stage and so we are now starting to study them and understanding exactly what is going on. So I think this is really interesting. Also uh, Primaquine has been modified to form a new drug that is now in clinical trials that would need just one treatment. So it's still the dangers of, uh, you know, for people that have G6PD deficiency but the fact that it's just one treatment could be uh, helping a lot in many aspects. So we are just starting at the point of knowing more of Vivax and I'm sure the future will bring new concepts and this will be more studied. Okay? I also mentioned that early diagnosis is a very important tool to reduce the number of deaths and to reduce the number of uh, malaria cases that really can have a bad outcome. And what diagnoses are there? You know, from the Three types I divide here from the very classical one, the gimsustained blood smears used by microscopy. This is classical one, is easy uh, to obtain, is easy to do uh, staining. There is a major problem of this, is that besides being time-consuming to find the parasites, it really requires trade personal. And this is probably the major disadvantage of this. Of course, the best one would be to have a rapid diagnostic test. The problem is that the ones that are available at the moment, they really generate both false positive and false negatives that in a proportion that sometimes is, uh, you know, not acceptable. And so we run the risk of, you know, missing some infections or diagnosing some that are not. And of course, then there is the highly reliable PCR-based assays, but obviously these ones are 
extremely time-consuming and really requires uh, not only specialized personnel but specialized machinery and obviously uh, then becomes much more difficult and is difficult to use. So again, we are much in need of a rapid test, uh, diagnostic test that really would uh, be reliable, will be fast and would not need uh, uh, trained personnel. Okay? So what about drugs? Let me go through a little bit of history of this. The first anti-malarial drug, in fact, was quinine, was from the bark of a tree in South America, and basically it was brought to uh, Europe by the Jesuits and was extremely efficacious. There is some resistance, but in fact, sometimes it's still used to treat uh, malaria cases. In already in the 20th century then, the Germans are really developed a drug, risoquine, that in fact is chloroquine, later on was called chloroquine, and the Americans thought we have a different drug, but in fact was exactly the same drug, that was extremely cheap and extremely efficacious on killing the parasite. So this was really a fantastic tool that you know, was used during the first eradication campaign to uh, control malaria besides the DDT, the, uh, the insecticide to, to kill uh, mosquitoes. And then a series of different drugs were developed, okay, until in the 70s, artemisinin was really discovered by Chinese scientists that isolated artemisinin from uh, artemisia, a plant that basically was used in traditional Chinese medicine, and they showed that really could kill malaria parasites. And in fact, UU2 received the Nobel Prize in 2015 for this uh, combination. But Tony, uh, in the turning of the millennium, we start to use artemisinin in a global scale in combination therapies and now is a very important tool. But the most important point that I want to bring here to these drugs is that we know that as soon as we introduce a drug, globally introduce a drug, within 10 years, within a decade, resistance by parasites to these drugs start to appear. So we know that we need to have a constant pipeline of antimalarial drugs if we think that we are going to eradicate malaria with drugs. Of course, we have learned now with other infectious diseases, as is the case of uh, HIV, that resistance can be, present, can be prevented by the use of uh, drug combinations, but still... We know that in many of these malaria carriers, people don't have access to the proper uh, uh, malaria drugs uh, and they don't use for the right amount of time, etc. So it's just a question of time and drug resistance will appear. So the holy grail probably to really be able to combat malaria would have would be to have a malaria vaccine, an efficient malaria vaccine that is able to prevent individuals of becoming infected. And of course, uh, throughout the history of the 20th century, many different uh, research labs, many different scientists really tackled this problem, trying to find vaccines. And in fact, Around vaccines, probably the first big discovery was against the preritrocytic stages, the liver stages, when Ruth Nussensweig in the 70s shows that rodents infected with radiation-attenuated sporozoids, the stage that comes out of the salivary glands of the mosquitoes, these parasites would reach liver apatocytes, 
but would not be able to replicate. And by doing this, basically, they created sterile immunity in, in rodents. In fact, it was later on shown uh, by the uh, U.S. Army and more recently by many different labs around the world and many different tiles uh, that different forms of attenuation of these parasites basically lead to sterile immunity in humans. But uh, until now, this poses still a lot of challenges. How these mosquitoes, how these parasites are going to be, you know, transmitted to humans, how they need to be stored, or how they are going to be transported to the malaria endemic areas, etc., pose many challenges that obviously scientists around the world are trying to find solutions. Of course, besides the whole sporozoid, uh, malaria vaccines are also subunit vaccines. And we will talk about one of them and the most successful until these days and that being licensed, but of course, many different groups are using different molecules of the uh, liver stage uh, parasite that could induce a response that would kill the parasite at this stage. Ideally, this is a really fantastic concept that you would block the malaria infection before the parasites reach the blood and cause disease. But of course, there is a lot of different groups around the world that are also trying to develop blood stage vaccines and really trying to find ways of blocking parasite entering inside of red blood cells, blocking invasion, or then killing the parasite, of, uh, not allowing the parasite to replicate in, uh, in, red, blood, uh, in red blood cells. So different uh, uh, vaccines are being developed and you know, being thought around the world. But there is even another uh, type of vaccines that are also being thought, that is the transmission-blocking vaccines. These vaccines are very interesting in a way, you know, the concept is itself, because it's an altruist concept. The person that will be uh, vaccinated will not uh, be protecting uh, themselves, but instead will be preventing uh, spreading the, the disease to other, the infection and disease to other human beings. And, uh, and so all these concepts are being studied, are being tested in different ways and different approaches to really find a new malaria vaccine. But in fact, in 2015, it was licensed a vaccine against malaria. This is a subunit vaccine that, for the preritrocytic stages, uses one uh, molecule that is a, a, a protein that covers the, uh, the main uh, surface of the plasmodium sporozoites. It's called circumsporozoite protein and is really the coat of these parasites. And it has been shown that in humans leads to 40% reduction in infections. So it's not a highly efficient vaccine. It doesn't reach more 80 or 90% of, uh, of protection, only reach 40%, and needs four doses to really, uh, you know, be uh, more long-term. And so it poses a lot of problems, but the fact that we didn't have anything better really led the authorities to license this vaccine. And 2019 has been a really important year in that respect because we started a pilot program that basically three countries in Africa, Malawi, Ghana, and Kenya are participating. And it is estimated that more than 300,000 children uh, uh, per year will receive this vaccine. And, uh, you know, if you start to make the calculations, of course, uh, thousands or millions of lives will, will be uh, protected with this vaccine. But obviously, we need uh, a better one. 
So, what are the challenges in the fight against malaria and what we face? And basically, I, I brought here some aspects, but there are many others that I could bring. Of course, the many challenges that we affect is like the fact that the parasite is always uh, starting to develop resistance to the new uh, drugs that we are developing. Of course, the fact that the, the mosquitoes are developing always resistance to the new insecticides that you are developing. These are really challenges that we need always to overcome. But there is also another challenge is more general that we need to understand better and we need to understand the biology and the interactions that the parasite and host establish to really fully understand this disease and probably then be able to combat it in a more rational way. And both the genetic diversity, okay? Um, so the vaccines are species-specific and we have many different strains. Many of these vaccines are developed for falciparum, but what about the Vivax, plasmodium Vivax? So all these things need to be thought about. This is complexity. As I mentioned to you, malaria itself is not manifested in one kind of disease that, you know, leads to death. It's really different manifestations of severe disease that outcome is very, very distinct. Okay? The fact that sterile immunity is never achieved and, you know, in the context of a natural infection is something that is telling us how we are really attempting to do better than nature does. Okay? And of course, until now, we are really focusing more in plasmodium falciparum. It is the only human malaria parasite that we really can culture besides now plasmodium onosei that is also being able. But Vivax, we still cannot efficiently and reproducibly, uh, you know, culture in in lab, and of course, this offers. Uh, uh, lots of technical limitations into understanding biology. That as scientists, we need to find solutions for these problems. Okay, and so what we have until now. I think we have come a long way. And in fact, malaria is probably has covered the entire planet with exception of Antarctica. And so, and these days is confined to a, a small region of the planet. Still, a lot of people are in danger. And we need, of course, to do better than we are doing now. But we are now developing beautiful tools, are developing now new ways. And I'm sure that... Uh, you know, sooner or later we'll be able to really control this deadly disease and get rid of this disease from the planet and from us. And finally, I cannot uh, finish this uh, uh, talk without uh, truly thank the students in my lab. Master and PhD students came together to put the slides together for this presentation here. Some of them, uh, including Vriata and João, have just finished to write their thesis, are just finishing their PhD, and so many of these concepts they were putting together for the introduction of their thesis. But together, all these students came together and they were able to make uh, what I hope that you enjoy and uh, that you found it useful. And so I want to thank them all. And I hope you really have enjoyed this talk. Thank you. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, and the European Molecular Biology Organization.